So the text that we're looking at today, whereas Jesus observing a Passover celebration, is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. But if you'll notice, the earlier part of John 2 is very familiar too. That's Jesus uh, at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned water into wine. But the really important thing about that text for John, I think, is not so much that um, um, he made the wine. I'm sure I made that everybody that made everybody happy. But you you notice he took water that went in purification jars for Jewish religious rituals, and that's the water he turned into wine. So the reason John tells you about Jesus turning water to wine is what, what John's interested in and he's going to show it to you throughout his gospel, is that in Jesus, the old Judaism is fulfilled. Uh, that's why what Jesus does in Cana, besides attend a wedding, besides turn water into wine, is water that's there for purification rituals, according to the Jewish law, for the people who are attending the wedding. Well, he takes that old water of old purification rituals and makes new wine out of it. So uh, you need to make sure you kind of see that. I know we get excited about the wine, but you need to kind of see that. That didn't excite the Jews so much. They, that's all they had to drink was wine. You didn't drink water in the first century anywhere, so they all drank wine. So it wasn't the fact that wine got created, but the water that was used to make the wine was the old water for, for the old purification rites for the Jews. And Jesus did something new. Jesus brought something new with that water. Well, he's going to continue on in the, that same theme here at the end of John chapter 2. Um, so look at the text. Um, you already know a lot of this background now. You know why he's in Jerusalem for Passover. It's one of the three pilgrimage festivals. So it's uh, one of those festivals that, if all possible, uh, you pack up from wherever you're at as a Jew and you made your way back to Jerusalem while the temple was still standing. Uh, for the celebration of Passover, Josephus, that first century Jewish historian, says that um, they would reach as many as two million people uh, coming into Jerusalem for Passover. That's probably exaggerated, but it gives you a sense of all the people that flood into Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem's not near a water source. Jerusalem's not near a trade route. Jerusalem, till today almost, Jerusalem has always been dependent upon tourists or pilgrims is the better way to say it. In the time of Jesus and before, it's, it's pilgrims coming to the temple that allows for um, Jerusalem to exist. Um, it's not quite that way today. Well, Jerusalem probably is. Israel's not that way today. Tourism's like number three after medical research and technological development and military research, tourism is still a big industry in Israel. Uh, it probably still is the, the, the most major industry in Jerusalem. Uh, it's always been that way. That's not anything new. It was that way in Jesus' day. People went there for the, for the temple. It was the center of the Jewish faith. So Passover is one of those three uh, pilgrimage festivals. So Jesus leaves where his home is which is Capernaum. That was his home as an adult. Uh, there on the Sea of Galilee, he leaves Capernaum. He makes the trek down to Jerusalem for, 
for this Passover festival. There are actually three Passovers recorded in John's gospel. Uh, there's this one, chapter 2. There's one recorded in chapter 6. There's one recorded in chapter 11. And that's why it's only John's gospel that, that presents to us a three-year ministry of Jesus. If we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would, have, we would think it was only a one-year ministry. But uh, John corrects that for us because he makes three trips for Passover to Jerusalem. For Jesus, that would have been about um, an 80-mile to 100-mile trek every time he went to Jerusalem. Um, you know, the Galilee's far north, Samaria's in the middle, Judea, which is where Jerusalem is in the south. And, of course, the good Jews up in the far north would kind of bypass Samaria uh, to come down to the south, uh, Judea, where Jerusalem is. Um, but about an 80-mile trek, which was usually on foot is the way you would do it. But anyway, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Um, so look at the text, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, again, we've talked at length about every time you see the Jews in John's Gospel, it's the Judeans. It's the Judean, not only the Jude, this may be the Judeans. Most of the time, it's the Judean religious leaders that being, that's being referenced. The reason this may be all the Judeans, there is some evidence that the Judeans there in Judah around Jerusalem had a different Passover day from the Essenes who mostly ended up in Qumran, from, from, even from the Jews that were up in the Galilee. So some people read this where he says, now the Passover of the Jews, um, he says evidence that, there, that, that, that different Jews had different dates for Passover, um, which is why you're being told the Passover of the Judeans was at hand. I don't know that there's strong evidence for that. don't know that it makes a difference anyway. Um, but we do know that Jews debated over, the, over, over days, what day a certain holiday would fall on. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a Passover of the Jews, of the Judeans. Uh, the Passover, as is being celebrated in Jerusalem, uh, was at hand, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And again, those of you that have been to Jerusalem, you know that every, almost every time the Bible references Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Uh, that's why a number of your psalms, if you look at them, before you start reading the psalm, it will say a psalm of ascent. Those are the songs that people would sing as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Um, that's why it's fascinating territory there. In Jerusalem, you're 2,500 feet above sea level. You drive um, 25 miles, you're at the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the earth to show how dramatically the geography can change in the Holy Land. Anyway, so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. It's Passover uh, in the temple. So we know the setting. He's, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And that's really important for what he's getting ready to do here. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Well, you know what he's going to do if you have any relationship to the New Testament. You know what he's going to do. This is the cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of the money changers from the temple. Um, interesting account on so many levels. Let me talk to you for just a moment about the cleansing of the temple in general. Um, here in John's gospel, you see it occurs chapter 2, 
very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, because in a lot of ways, it symbolizes the whole ministry of Jesus. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, it occurs the week of his crucifixion. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it appears the cleansing of the temple was the trigger that led to his immediate death in just a couple of days. Um, here, it's at the beginning. It's, it's, there's been, throughout the history of the church, um, particularly in the early church, the early church fathers, and a lot of us are a little fond of the early church fathers, you know, if you want some um, interpretation on New Testament. Uh, the early church fathers are fond of saying he cleansed it twice. What you tend to read in, in, in our age is that, you know, John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke just weren't that concerned about chronology or facts, and they just kind of rearranged the life of Jesus to suit whatever they were trying to portray. Um, I think he probably did it twice. I think he did it at the beginning of his ministry for some really important reasons uh, that, that we can see in John's gospel that we'll get to. But I, and he survived it that time. I think then at the end, he did it a second time. And when he did it the second time, that's when the Judean religious leader said, we've had it. You know, he, he's, he's costing us too much in too many different ways. And uh, that's why um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he cleanses the temple. And then within a couple of days, he's, he's on the cross. So um, I think he did it twice. That's not a popular opinion today, but that's kind of the opinion from earliest days of church history. Uh, I think both the John and the Synoptics know what they're doing, and he did it twice. Let me talk about what, what he's doing. You know, I, I've heard a lot of contemporary preachers over my life you know, when they preach this text about the best they can do with it, is, see, I told you Jesus got angry sometimes. Well, yeah, he did. Or, I mean, I've actually heard this. This is the text that says you shouldn't sell things at the church. <laughs> That's the best you can do. Just don't preach this text. There, there's, some, there's some really important stuff going on in the cleansing of the temple. The, the people, let me tell you what the cleansing of the temple is about. Uh, the people who were there money-changing, the people who were there with, with, with the animals for sacrifice, they were doing an important service. They were doing a necessary service. All these people were coming from around the ancient world. Jesus was fortunate. He wasn't that far away, really, from Jerusalem. But all these other Jews coming from around the ancient world. And when they got there, they, there were always a couple things they would do in Jerusalem. They would make sacrifice in the temple, and they would have to pay their annual temple tax. Well, that re both of those require two things. One, you've got to have some animals to sacrifice. Well, even if you wanted to carry your animals from, for eight days till you got to Jerusalem, the problem with that is the animals may not survive well, and your sacrifices need to be as nearly unblemished as possible. So it just makes much better sense. Just get your animal when you're there. Don't try to carry and keep that dove alive for that whole journey from, you may be coming from Rome. So, you know, you, you just buy your sacrifice while it's there. So, and that was typical. That was important. That was a, a necessary uh, thing to be done. The money changers, just like when you fly into a foreign country, you need to exchange your money. Uh, if you want to buy anything, your money doesn't work. Your American dollars doesn't work. You've got to change them to a euro or to a shekel or something. Well, when you went there to pay your temple tax, um, 
like a lot of places, you know, if the only thing you got is an American dollar, they usually take the American dollar and they'll find a way to go exchange it. But the problem with money from around the world for the temple was a lot of money from around the world would have graven images on it. Images of the emperor. If not images of the emperor, maybe images of pagan gods. So no, you could not pay your temple tax with money that had pagan graven images on it. So it became even more necessary to exchange the money. Exchange the money. Now, so what they're doing is not bad. It's not evil. They're not bad guys. They're doing this. So, and we'll look in a minute about why Jesus then pitched his fit, pitched his righteous fit with these people. As a matter of fact, if you go to Jerusalem, uh, part of what you'll see in the... um, in the, some of the excavation from the southern part of the ancient city, you'll actually see a, a, an ancient street that's been excavated. You'll actually see some of the large, huge stones that were knocked over, thrown down when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. But you'll also see, if you're, if you're walking with the temple here, Temple Mount here, and you walk in this way down that ancient road, what you'll now see over on the side is obvious are little shops where vendors could set up and sell their wares. Um, kind of like you see at the flea market. You'll see the little, and it's all stone, so it's still there. You'll see the petitions between uh, where, where vendors were set up. And the reason that's significant, we know that not long after the time of Jesus, all the Jewish people got together and said, yeah, can't we go over there and sell our stuff? instead of the temple precincts. Now, keep in mind, the temple precincts were huge. You had the court of the women, you had the court of the Gentiles, so that was huge. But um, Jesus was not the only Jew that said, can you please set up somewhere else? Um, And eventually they did. Eventually they did. Jesus wasn't the only one raising this issue. You know, can't you set your flea market up somewhere besides just as you come into the temple? And eventually they did, and we have evidence of that. So Jesus cleanses the temple twice. It's not so much about what the people are doing in the temple as it is about how Jesus views the temple, what Jesus is saying about the temple. Um, he's, He's acting out an object lesson when he does this. So look at the text now. Uh, in the temple, he found those who were selling, this verse 14, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold, sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house. We talked about that kind of language last week. Do not make my father's house um, a house of trade. His disciples remembered, you know, his disciples telling the story later, like John here, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, That's a quotation from Psalm 69. Um, So that's what Jesus did. Again, what, he's not doing this because of what's being done there. He's not doing this because of those um, animals that are being provided for sacrifice. He's not doing this because of, um, maybe, I'll give you a caveat. He's not doing this because of uh, the money changers. Now, what could be going on here, and this may be true, 
and this may be part of Jesus' anger, um, but don't just hear this and land on this and not proceed to the more important point about the text that we're going to get to. Uh, what might could have been happening is the, the people who were doing this great service for the pilgrims coming to the temple were also doing, guess what? Yeah, they're probably making a pretty nice profit. They weren't just providing the service. It'd be like me saying, you, it's time for communion. Here, let me sell you these elements that are profit. Now, that could be going on. I mean, because we know human nature well enough. Capitalism has always been alive and well in most places. So that could be going on. That could be part of his anger. Um, he, he, and you hear that preached a lot, and that may be true, that he's taking, these people are taking advantage of these devout Jews who come needing their animal sacrifices, needing to change their money to pay their temple tax, and they're making um, too much money on it. But now the interesting thing about that, where this may not be true, may not be true, the Old Testament forbids usury. Um, Christians, by the way, forbidden usury uh, till well into the Middle Ages. You know, we finally, so y'all can all kind of settle down a little bit because we finally said, okay, usury is just charging an exorbitant amount of interest. But throughout the history of Judaism and well into the uh, first thousand years of Christianity, we just considered usury charging interest. So I, I'm not sure that they could have even finagled their way in first century Judaism to charging, charging interest or charging excess on, on what they're selling to them. They could have, though. Um, capitalism's always been alive and well, and we'll find a way around the rules, you know, if we need to. But yeah, usury is forbidden in the Bible. So uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of glad because um, my, my investments have done well the last year, just like yours have. I'm kind of glad that I've decided usury is, is charging too much interest. You know, I don't mind using money to make money. But that was forbidden for, for centuries. Um, so I'm not sure they're making a lot of money on the selling of, of the sacrifice or um, the change. Maybe they could be. But again, that's not the most important thing here. John's gospel makes it clear why he's doing it. Look at verse 18. So the Jews, and again, these are the particular, at this point we know it's the Judean religious leaders who are there in the temple, and they don't like commotions in the temple for a lot of reasons. They don't like commotions, but when commotions would happen, what would the Romans do? They would come down hard. Yeah, the only thing the Romans were concerned about is they ruled over you. As you pay your taxes, you keep the peace. If you refuse to do either one of those, Rome showed up with all of her power. So these Judean religious leaders, in a sense, are just trying to maintain the harmony under, under the rule of the Romans. Um, so yeah, I'm sure these are Jewish religious leaders here, Judean religious leaders. So these Judean religious leaders who ran the temple, probably mostly Sadducees, said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Um, who do you think you are? And again, that's always the big question in the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. Who, who, Jesus, do you think you are coming here, calling it my Father's house, and acting as if you're in charge, acting as if you're in control? Well, you know enough about Christian theology in the Gospel of John. You could answer that one. 
who, when you ask Jesus, who do you think you are? Yeah, he, it's, his, it's his father's house, which means it's kind of his to do with as he pleases. This is not going to go over well with the Judean leaders. Again, he's either who he says he is or he's a lunatic. I'm sure most of the crowd that day thought he was a lunatic. Let loose, having a fit in the temple. He's, he's going to push this issue. Um, verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, jump ahead to the trials of Jesus. One of the things Jesus was accused of by the Judeans, and you remember this, because they, they quote it. They said, this man says he's going to destroy the temple. Well, the problem was he, he really wasn't talking about that brick and mortar, that amazing building there atop the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's not really what he was talking about when he said, when he said and he's actually saying he wasn't going to destroy it. He says, you are. He says, destroy this temple. Yeah, by the time they get their hatred for Jesus becomes so much, they say, he said he was going to destroy our holy place. That's not really what he said. Destroy this temple... And he's standing in the temple, destroy this temple. So it could have been mistaken that he said they or somebody is going to destroy this temple, except for what he says next. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So when he refers to this temple, what's he talking about? His body. His body. So what Jesus has just said here in the temple precinct... And this is core Christian theology. He is the new temple. This thing standing around him at this point is becoming outdated. You know, uh, um, the temple in Jerusalem from the time, well, you had the tabernacle before you built the temple, but then Solomon built, built the temple. From the time you had a tabernacle to the time you had Solomon's temple, till it was destroyed, and then you had this second temple built. The temple was the place where God resided. The temple was the place you would go to offer your lives via the offering of sacrifices to God. The temple was where you would go to get forgiveness of your sins on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So when Jesus says, I'm the temple, we Christians know what he's saying. You come to me now to experience God. You come to me now to feel the presence of God. You come to me now to have your sins forgiven. Um, you come to me now when you want to give your life to God. So Jesus is saying he is the new temple. He goes to town at Passover, because he's going to become the new Passover too, by the way. But you know that. He's going to become the new Passover. Here he's saying he's the new temple. And, and, and I'm grateful for that because that means he's a portable temple. You know, as much as I love to go to Jerusalem, I don't have to go there to have my sins forgiven. I don't have to go there to worship God. Um, he's the portable temple. Wherever Jesus is, there is the temple of God. And that's why he says, destroy this temple. And I'm sure he probably pointed to his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, of course, typical of John's gospel, people are going to be confused by what Jesus is saying. Uh, the Judeans are usually confused by Jesus. The disciples are most of the time confused by Jesus. So um, he said this, destroy this temple. And I think he pointed to himself. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, again, by the time the trial of Jesus comes, 
they turned that into. He said he was going to destroy our holy place and somehow miraculously rebuild it in three days. But that's not what he was saying. But his enemies didn't really care. They just were his enemies. So look at the way that the Jews respond, the Judean religious leaders respond. The Judean religious leaders then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And that's right. Um, it started being built about 19 B.C. under the rule of Herod the Great. He's called the Great because of all his building projects. Um, we, we kind of figure out and do the math, which I hate math, but everybody does the math, says that, that does fit right. We're, we're at about the year 27, 28 A.D., which should be right. Jesus probably died around the year 30, something like that. So the, 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 the temple has been being built for 46 years. The temple, by the way, as an aside, will continue to be built. It will not be finished. And what, what's really going on is, is Herod and his sons are renovating the temple to make it even more and more glorious. So that's why the temple is still functioning while this is all going on. But it's not really finished. The project is not really finished till about 63 A.D., 64 A.D., 65 A.D. So it's finished, and then what happens to it in 70? It's destroyed. The Romans destroy it. Um, anyway, so the Jews are saying, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Well, again, they're not getting what he's saying. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John is making sure we Christians get what he's saying. Uh, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to him. And again, scripture had been the Old Testament that was used to preach Jesus. Uh, one of the other things you need to understand is, as context, um, there were a lot of Jews in the first century concerned about the purity of the temple. You know, I keep mentioning those Essenes who go out to Qumran. They, they leave Jerusalem. They're the ones, we think, created all those Dead Sea Scrolls that got buried away and then discovered in 1947, 48. Some got discovered last year. We're still discovering scrolls out there in the Judean desert. Judean desert, by the way, is so dry, they survive. So we're still discovering scrolls. And so when we do that, we're, we're discovering scrolls written around the time of Jesus, either right before or right after. Um, but anyway, those Essenes went out there in the desert because they believed that the, they believed the temple in Jerusalem and the temple leadership in Jerusalem had become so corrupt, it was not a true temple anymore. So even in Jesus' day, you had people, Jews, who'd already rejected the temple because not long before this, the Romans were appointing people, the Romans began appointing people, high priest of the temple because they liked they're control freaks. They like to rule things. Uh, they, they, were, they were appointing uh, priest, um, high priests to the temple. And that's why for a period you have some high priests called stuff like Alexander, Janaeus. That's a pagan name. That's not Hebrew. That's not Jewish. So the Romans were even making some people high priests of the temple that weren't even Jewish. So, yeah, there were a lot of people having issues with the temple. Uh, when Jesus there now, now in Jesus, when Jesus is there, Caiaphas is the high priest. He's Jewish. His father-in-law is Annas, who is also Jewish. But f there, there are a lot of Jews having issues with the temple. So some people like this scene said it's, it's too corrupt. Do, do away with it. Others are seeking to reform the temple. So Jesus wouldn't have been that unusual when he made this 
statement about the temple. Now, what we have to decide as Christians is what's the statement about. Um, and that's why you heard me say, and I said it on purpose because I usually try to not say it. It's usually referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Well, the cleansing sort of means you were one of that group that was in favor of reforming the temple, cleansing the temple, getting it back on track. Um, Christian theology really doesn't say it's the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is making a statement about the temple. It's, it's passing away. It's going away. Now, you can imagine when 70 A.D. rolled around and the Romans destroyed the temple. You can imagine how a lot of Christians interpreted that. And that's one of the reasons you're not speaking Hebrew in church, probably. Uh, the, the Jewish-Christian divide really exacerbated. When the, when the Romans came to town, the Romans uh, destroyed the temple. We didn't fight, you know. The, the tradition is we, we um, I told it and ran. We left Jerusalem, went to a place called Pella. Because the, the temple was important to us, but not that important. Because we had a new temple in Jesus. So it's not so much a cleansing of the temple as Jesus sort of saying, just like what he just, what he'd just done in Cana, that old water is something new now. It's new wine. This temple... We don't really need it anymore. This temple I will raise in three days. He's the new temple. So that's why Christian theology, we really shouldn't even call it cleansing of the temple, like we want to keep on using it. But this is sort of an object lesson, a parable. This is an acted-out parable by Jesus, showing that the time of the temple had, had, had come to an end. Um, anyway, that, that's what's important. That's why it's much more important than saying, this says you can't sell stuff at church. I mean, that's, that may or may not be true, but this is important. He's the new temple, and, all, and we need to understand all that means about Jesus being the new temple. Uh, he's gone in, and um, yeah, he was trying to empty it out. He was doing away with uh, exchange of money, which is necessary. He's doing away with the sacrifice of animals, which was necessary, as long as the temple was functioning. But he's saying something much more dramatic about the temple. Okay, look at verse 25. Let's wrap it up. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And I've said several, several times, again, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, are just the Judean religious leaders who have their reasons for just absolute thinking. For, for them, Jesus had to be a lunatic. But make sure you notice what the New Testament says. A lot of Jews followed Jesus. Book of Acts says Pharisees and priests followed Jesus. It was not Jesus against all the evil Jews in the world, or even all the evil Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, John makes that clear. Now when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover, many believed in his name. Now again, remember, in the Bible, these numbers we've inserted, we inserted in modern history, just so we could find our way around the Bible quickly. If number three wasn't there, and you didn't think you were, that's another chapter for another day, What's the next story in John's gospel? Jesus and Nicodemus. Yeah, so you're just told, um, now when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name. I hear preachers who have tried to talk about, well, was Nicodemus sincere or not? I think John would say, 
get the numbers out of the way and read the text. He just said many Jews believed. And then here comes Nicodemus at night to learn more about Jesus. So many believed in his name. By the way, in his name means, that's, that's the Hebraic way of saying, in his person, in his power, in his spirit. That's why when you pray in the name of Jesus, that does it, that's not a magical formula that you have to stick on every prayer. When you pray in the name of Jesus, what you're asking for there is you're only praying for something that you can pray in the spirit of Jesus. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're praying in the power, through the authority, in the spirit of Jesus. That's why you cannot say, God, give me a pink Cadillac. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Because that's not in the spirit of Jesus. I don't, he's not opposed to you having wheels, I think. He walked everywhere he went. But, um, you know, that's why in the name of Jesus is not a magical formula to stick on the end. It's saying you have to pray in the name of Jesus. You have to pray in the spirit of Jesus according to the authority and the power of Jesus. And that's why to believe in his name, as it says here, you're believing in who he is, his power, his personality, his authority. Uh, for us in the modern world, our name is just our label. That's not what it was in the ancient world. Your name sort of encompassed, encompassed who you were and your power. and um, Yeah. So that it says, many believed in his name. I think one of them was named Nicodemus. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, you know, we, we obviously know the changing water to wine. We term that as a sign. Well, I think what he did this day in the temple was another sign, another teaching moment. Uh, when they saw him do that, you either say he's a lunatic. I mean, look what he's doing in the temple. He's either a lunatic or we might need to pay attention to who he says he is. Those are all two options you got there. I mean, he, he, he could have easily got arrested for disrupting the peace, I'm sure, that day. Uh, but at least some of the people understood what he was claiming when he did that, what he was claiming about himself when he did that. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Particularly in John's gospel, you get the occasion, you get these little glimpses that Jesus almost had supernatural knowledge about stuff. Uh, and that may or may not be true. I mean, I think most of us understand human nature pretty well, too. So he understood human nature to himself that even though these people were believing in him, yeah, some of those people who believed in him were some of the same ones in about two and a half years are going to start shouting, crucify him. So he did not entrust himself to them because he knew, he knew all people. He knew, what, he knew what's in human nature and needed no one to bear witness about him. You know, he's glad when people do, but, you know, he's still who he is, whether I bear witness to him or not. I remember I grew up in a church, and I'm, language is important. I grew up in a church, you know, and I, we were told every Sunday morning at the end of the service, and I, I, I agree with what I was, I agree with what this meant. But the way it was usually presented was, make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Think about that language a minute. Do you see a problem with that language? What you need to do is understand he is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not, he's Lord. Now, if you have a lick of sense... You will acknowledge he's Lord. But you don't make him Lord of anything. He is Lord. He's cosmic Lord. That's who he is. He can go in the temple and do this to it. That's who he is. But I don't bear witness to him. You know, like if I decide who he is, well then, okay, that's who he is. He's who he is whether I acknowledge it or not. Christians are those people in the world today who are smart enough to know who he is. 
One day, all universe, one day every knee shall bow. One day the whole universe will know who he is. We Christians are the ones who are smart enough who know in advance who he is. Um, that's, why, that's what he means when he says he, he doesn't need anyone to bear witness to him, for he himself knew what was in man. He doesn't need fickle human beings. You know, he's not going to crumble if all of us, you know, if he gets down to, well, we have, we have a, we have a 36%, I think, rate of Americans who attend church and Europe is between 5 and 10%. If we got down to a negative 3% rate of people attending church, he's still who he says he is. Where the whole human race ignores it, he's still who he says he is. And that's, that's kind of the um, harsh remark that John's making here. So, um, 